Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Cooker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if you think a honky-tonk parade is bad, wait till you're stuck in a rock-and-roll hoochie-coo. I'm joined in this episode once again by New York Times bestselling author David Mack, who has written over 30 Star Trek novels, short stories, and novellas. Dave also writes not Trek fiction. His latest novel, The Shadow Commission, is the third entry in the Dark Arts series. It comes out on June 9th. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. It's always great to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about It's Only a Paper Moon, the 10th episode of the seventh season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Long-running and ambitious shows like the ones in the Star Trek franchise tend to accrete a cast of characters that go beyond their featured players. Audiences may tune in for the adventures of Captain Kirk or Captain Picard, but they stay tuned for the Qs and Garricks and Sereks that populate the fringes of the franchise. And sometimes those side characters emerge from the wings and give us some of the series' most important stories. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, David, just like the last time that you were on when we talked about your episode Starship Down, we'll be doing mm-hmm. things a little bit differently today because we've got one half of the team behind the creation of Paper Moon here. We'll be talking about the experience of conceiving and pitching the episode and tracking its progress from draft to script to screen, as well as discussing the particulars of the episode. Uh, now comes the part of the show where you just smile and say no comment, but can you tell us anything about how your work is going as a consultant for CBS? I can say it's going very well. Good. I'm, ha- I'm having a very good time working with the folks at Lower Decks and with the folks at the uh, Star Trek Kids show being produced for Nickelodeon by yeah. the Hageman brothers. Yeah. Um, in fact, right now we've concluded our work for season one on Lower Decks, and I think they are between writers' rooms. I could be wrong about that. I don't know. If they've convened a, a season two room, I have not heard of it yet. Hopefully I will soon. Sure. The... Second season episodes for the kids show are already well underway. Uh, they've reached about the halfway point with plotting story outlines. And I've seen scripts up through, I believe, 203. And we're, uh, you know, we're having a good time. In fact, I'm supposed to have a uh, video call with the team from the kids show next week. We're going to be talking about some cool science fiction tech ideas and, uh, you know, just sort of touching base on a bunch of other notions, but yeah, it's a a really great gig. Um, I'm just glad that I get to contribute in some way, uh, to helping these guys make their shows be the trekkiest trek they can be. And, um, I look forward to continuing that relationship and I hope that both lower decks and the kids show and hopefully other trek shows, uh, to come down the pike, will uh, engage my services in one manner or another in the coming years. Yeah, probably not a lot of chance to spread your wings as the angel of death on a, a Nickelodeon show. No, but uh, then again, that's a reputation which got blown out of proportion. I picked up, <laughs> I picked up that nickname on my first ever novel, yeah. Wildfire, because I killed off half the crew, <laughs> and I didn't do myself any favors with Destiny, where I kill sixty billion and wipe out planets. And, <laughs> but the point is, is that you know I was also capable of writing, you know, uh, smaller, more hopeful stories, romantic stories, uh, stories of you know triumph of the spirit. I, 
I, I cover a broad gamut of experience. It's just people focus on the fact that uh, I have a couple of instances where I may be a little more bloodthirsty than the average. Sure. <laughs> What's uh, 60 billion between friends, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, your third book in your Dark Arts series is coming out this year, Shadow Commission, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, but I don't remember if I ever asked you about your novel from 2009, The Calling. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, urban fantasy is a popular genre and it so often features vampires and werewolves and elements of gothic horror with a modern twist. But the calling features more traditional creatures of good and evil, angels and demons. What was your motivation in writing a fantasy novel that explores more traditional religious elements? It started out when I was trying to think of a good idea for a TV series. Hmm. And one of the things that I'd always talked about with my former scriptwriting partner, John Ordover, we had tried to analyze what was the unifying principle behind shows that developed long-running devoted followings, particularly in primetime network television. And we determined that they were almost always going to be about people who had a job that that would basically uh, be about them inserting themselves into the lives of other people, resolving other people's problems while maybe not being so great at fixing their own, mm-hmm. uh, and having enough variety from week to week so that they're solving different kinds of problems so that you can tell different kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And so that variety would come through the guest stars and the story of the week rather than constantly changing the main character. And then the big device was, well, how do you get these people into their lives? In the case of the equalizer, you know, he would have his ad in the paper. The A team would always somehow miraculously be found by people who need them. Mission impossible. They would get their mission, you know, sent your mission if you choose to accept it and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, you know, okay, I want to have a story about a guy who gets involved and maybe has supernatural powers, but I haven't figured out what kind of powers, but I'm thinking, how does he know where to go? How does he, how does he find these people? And sitting at my desk when I was still working at sci-fi, I had the notion pop into my head. It started as a joke. I'm like, yeah, maybe here's some pray for help. And then I stopped and I went, holy crap. Wait a minute. He, he, <laughs> he hears when other people pray for help. Sure. And I thought that's actually fantastic, especially if you cast him as, say, an atheist or an agnostic, a guy who questions faith and the supernatural. He can't explain why he only hears prayers for help. He doesn't hear random thoughts. He's not a telepath. He can't explain why he hears this prayer and not that one. Why does he hear that person and not that person? He doesn't know. All he knows is once he hears somebody pray for help, he has to seek them out and figure out what to do about it. And it's not always helping the person get what they want. Sometimes it's about getting pulled into a situation and having to figure out what, how to do what's right, not necessarily what the person wants. So I had this notion of this as being like the really cool hook. It was sort of like Touched by an Angel, but uh, a little grittier. Sure. Uh, you know, Touched by an Angel meets the equalizer, let's say. Sure. So I had this notion, and so I started developing this cosmology, notion of angels and demons. I have the called, who are people who are born with their spirit, Uh, their soul bonded to the essence of an angel and this gives them certain powers but it also gives them certain responsibilities and then I thought well if you're going to have that then you might as well have the opposite some people are born 
bonded to demons and they're going to be natural villains and natural antagonists, especially if they start, you know, doing things where they're trying to prevent our heroes from doing good or setting things right, which is sort of almost uh, a nod on the whole quantum leap, dark leaper thing. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah, so it was partly inspired by that. And so that was where it started out. It started out as a TV pitch. And I had like, you know, 20 story ideas that I thought could constitute a first season slate of episodes. Uh, I had the notion of him finding, you know, another person like him who becomes his partner and helper. Um, and that's the character who became Aaron Sanchez. And then I didn't really have a good way to pitch it as a TV series. But then I thought, well, you know, this could be a good foundation for an urban fantasy novel because it goes somewhere that I haven't seen. Like I realized at that time, most urban fantasy novels were uh, a combination of paranormal mystery with romance. Mm -hmm. And most tended to focus on vampires, werewolves, creatures of the night and magicians. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I really want to do something different. So I went with the angel and demon angle. I worked out the called versus the uh, scorned. Um, I had the whole sort of mythology. You had seekers, you had seers, you had sages. So there's this sort of you know war behind the scenes. And then I have this one guy who knows nothing of it. He's just a handyman from Pennsylvania who helps people when he's when he hears what they need for help. So he, sure. I got this guy and got him in over his head, and I involved Russian mobsters. I set it in New York because I know New York like the back of my hand. Sure. And that was what led to the calling. And uh, I had hoped that it would be a bigger hit than it was. And I was hoping it would launch a book series, but it just did not take off. It, uh, I guess uh, there's a reason why people keep writing books about vampires and werewolves, because that's what people want. They and said, apparently, yeah. apparently this was not what they wanted. Huh. Uh, it got optioned for television twice. Uh, the first time, not much happened. Not much development was done. The second time... It was optioned by a company that had a pretty good TV track record. They put together a really terrific pitch package where they adapted the concept, and I liked some of the changes that they were making and directions they were taking. And it was in a package with two other ideas that went to Sony, uh, which said they were going to finance one of the three as a pilot. And the long story short is mine was not the one they picked. Hmm. And had that happened, that could have been a totally career-changing event, but... Uh, it did not happen. So, well, I would have watched that show. <laughs> it sounds pretty good. <laughs> so would I. I think it would have been a lot of fun. Uh, but you know, these things happen. However, what's interesting is that the Dark Arts series, although it's nominally uh, different, if you really look closely, you basically see what I did is I filed off the serial numbers of the fictional universe from the Calling. The Calling and the Dark Arts books could be the same fictional universe. Oh, okay. There you go. They both involve people bonded with angels and or demons right, uh, right. with supernatural powers that accrue as a result. Um, however, the Dark Arts series involves uh, a very detailed depiction of renaissance era ceremonial black magic right. it also includes depictions of pauline magic which is uh, white magic mm. and that was something that was absent from the original version of the calling um but it would not be that difficult to reimagine the calling with those elements grafted back on top yeah so um I can't brand it that way but <laughs> in my mind they share a, a fictional universe sure I always thought, I mean, reboots are so in vogue right now. Like, why don't they reboot Quantum Leap? I mean, we got Bakula. He's still around. They're and... talking about Yeah? 
Yeah, yeah, I've seen articles. They're, they're talking about it. Okay. Like a movie or like a TV series? I think a series. Okay. Well, I mean, I would watch that too. Yeah, who wouldn't? Uh, well, after we had you on last season to talk about Starship Down, it just seemed like the natural, natural next step to have you on to talk about It's Only a Paper Moon. And I know the final product was very different from the original concept of the aired episode, but uh, the resulting hour is significant, I think, in several ways. Serialization was always something that people seemed to want more of in Star Trek, and DS9 delivered on that, especially in later seasons. But I think this episode is significant in that it's a direct sequel to Siege of AR-558, and we don't get many sequels and Trek. This is sort of Nog's family. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Nog, I think that this is the first episode of the franchise where the main characters uh, in the story are both guest stars. That is, they're not regulars. Uh, their names don't uh, appear during the opening credits. Right. And I think it's a real testament to the work that Aaron Eisenberg and also James Darren um, do in developing their characters on the show uh, and the presence that they present that they would want to do an episode just about them. In reading about the development of the episode and the work that Ron Moore did behind the scenes uh, while he was drafting the teleplay, yeah. it seems that as Ron Moore conferred with Ira Stephen Bear, originally the episode was going to contain a couple of lighter, more comedic storylines that were going to be threaded with the main A-plot. And they wanted a heavy, more substantial, more significant story to anchor the episode. Mm. And that, of course, became the Nog uh, doing his, uh, you know, rehab in the hollow suite mm-hmm. storyline as they went through successive drafts of the story uh, or of the teleplay, I should say, they found that the comedic storylines were not working and that the heavy storyline, as they put it, really just kept demanding more time. It was more compelling. There was a lot of meat on the bone and they realized this is really what the episode needs to be. And the other stuff just has to go by the wayside because we need that time to properly explore this very meaningful story about this character who has gone through a serious trauma. Yeah. And eventually, as you say, it's a testament not just to the great work that the actors did in bringing their characters to life, but also the work that the writing team did and the confidence that the producers had in their cast and in their ideas to say, we can do an entire episode in which two of our recurring uh, characters who are not series regulars can carry the episode and the rest of our cast can pretty much have a bye week. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, And that's a pretty bold thing to do. That's a bold choice to make as a showrunner, as a writer producer, but they had done such excellent work at characterizing those, uh, you know, those characters uh, at bringing them to life, at rounding them out, that the audience cared enough about both of them that it was a success. It, it made for a very powerful episode. I'm sure you've had that experience in in writing, uh, whether it's a script or a story, thinking like, OK, I've got this story. I've got this other thing here. These will all be interesting. And then just sort of focusing or fixating on one of those storylines that, no, this is just too important like this. I can tell that this is. Uh, this is what people need to follow uh, through this this narrative. Absolutely. I think that's happened to pretty much every writer who writes for any length of time. You have that thing that starts out as just a part of the larger story. But the more time you spend on it, the more important you realize it is. For whatever reason, it comes to dominate your imagination when you're working on that story. And eventually it takes over. 
that was in fact how I ended up writing the first book of the Dark Arts series, The Midnight Front. That started out as the flashback subplot for the villain's origin story in what I thought was going to be a near future cyberpunk with black magic story. And I could never make it work. And I realized the problem was that all I really wanted to write was the world war two war epic with black magic. Sure. <laughs> and it wasn't until I accepted that truth and abandoned the cyberpunk thing and just went full fledged and took a, a head first dive into world war two war epic. Then all my passion for the material came to the fore. Yeah. And the project became something that I really was passionate about working on. Yeah. But before that, it was one of those things where the the subplot, it's just supposed to be a flashback, kept going, I'm really much more interesting than this. <laughs> when, you, when you write and you end up sort of throwing things out, do you still save everything or do you just totally, you know, just rip it up, delete it, whatever it is? I, I save everything because you never know when an idea – that was wrong for this project. Yeah. Maybe right for the next one. I suppose. So yeah. I keep all of my subsequent drafts. I often number them. I keep them in discrete folders. I keep my research segregated, uh, by project versions. I keep every email about every project, oh, sure, whether, sure. It's, whether it's creative or business. I have all my emails in, uh, archives in subfolders and folders within subfolders. Uh, so someone says, you know, do you remember what we talked about, about that project about five years ago? And I'd be like, hold on, I've got the entire email thread here. Yeah. They go, you what? I have the whole email thread right here. Boom. They go, how'd you find it so fast? I go, because it's already in its folder. And like, they, they look at my folder hierarchy and they just, their eyes glaze over. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and so that was one of those cases where that was what happened with Paper Moon. It started as one thing. And it simply needed to be something else. In many ways, I I lament the loss of what we originally pitched, but I am so proud of what we finally ended up with mm. that that takes the sting out of the loss. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, let's talk about the technical details of the episode real quick. Uh, it's only a paper moon. It first aired on December 30th of 1998 with a teleplay by Ronald D. Moore and the story by, of course, David Mack and John J. Ordover. It was directed by Anson Williams. If that name sounds familiar, it could be because he directed two episodes of DS9 and four episodes of Voyager and countless other TV episodes in his 35-year career as a director. But it may also be because he played the role of Potsy Weber for the 11-season run of the ABC sitcom Happy Days. Weber originated the role in a segment of the anthology series Love American Style titled Love and the Television Set. The segment was written by Happy Days creator Gary Marshall, and it aired along alongside a segment called Love and the Newscasters, which was Directed by prolific Star Trek, the original series director, Mark Daniels. Does anybody under the age of 25 even know what Happy Days is anymore? I probably would say no. <laughs> there's, there's all these cultures. They probably don't know who Fonzie is. Right, they don't right. Know, they don't understand Joni Loves Chachi. There's stuff that's come from it. Like, I guess, memes, you would say. Like, we've got Jumping the Shark. Um, sure. And percussive maintenance. I can't tell you how many things I thumped as a kid expecting they were just going to start doing something <laughs> thanks to Fonzie. Classic military engineering technique. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, the start date is unknown for this episode, uh, which is fairly typical of later episodes of DS9. But we do know that it obviously takes place 
after the siege of AR-558, and probably a fair amount of time before Stardate 52576.2, the stardate of the episode Penumbra, which marks the beginning of the final nine-episode arc of DS9. And it's also been speculated that the events of the motion picture Star Trek Insurrection could have taken place during the events of this episode. Uh, In fact, the film was released the weekend before this episode aired. The key element in the theory is the absence of Worf in the episode. He appears only in the opening scene. This episode also takes place over the course of weeks or perhaps months as Nog recovers, and Worf is absent from the next two episodes of the show as he is presumably on board the Enterprise-E during the Briar Patch incident. In the episode, Nog claims that the Searchers is better than Shane, and that's not a debate that I want to have right now. But Absolutely not. That's like having a religious fight. Right. But Nog's opinion is probably influenced by the fact that original Captain Pike actor Jeffrey Hunter stars in The Searchers. Footage from Shane appears here in the episode, probably for free, thanks to the film being a Paramount production. And I think the uh, task of the 25-word synopsis falls to me on this episode. So uh, here we go. It's only a paper moon in 25 words. After losing his leg in battle, Nog retreats to a hollow suite and must confront his post-traumatic stress disorder with the help of Vic Fontaine. Perfect. Yes. Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. Uh, Obviously, guest stars are the heroes of this episode, but I'd like to propose another set of heroes, the men and women who wrote and composed the classic tunes heard in this episode. Uh, People Mm. people like composer Harold Arlen, who composed the titular song, as well as I've Got the World on a String, which wraps up the episode. Other standards heard in the episode include the song Just in Time and I'll Be Seeing You, which is the song that first introduces Nog to the music of Vic Fontaine. And I'm actually getting ready to record a show about the Voyager episode, Someone to Watch Over Me. So there's been a lot of classic music in my house recently. Oh, fabulous. All, uh, yeah, just classics. I love how so many of these standards that we think of as being these classic songs that belong to Frank Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald, they all have their start in you know, totally forgettable films of the 30s or stage uh-huh. musicals where apparently every other song sucked in the show, but uh, th- th- this one song has been remembered from this forgotten property. The Cream Rises, what can we tell I you? I guess that's true, yeah. It, you gotta write a bunch of songs, even if you've only got one good song. Uh, what else? Uh, this episode is a favorite of many Trek personalities, not the least of which Aaron Eisenberg himself. When he was interviewed for the DS9 companion book, he remarked that he was honored that the producers of the show trusted him and James Darren with carrying the episode. He also said that Nog wasn't originally scripted to cry when Vic confronts him in the empty hollow suite, but he realized as an actor that it was crucial that we see exactly the depth of Nog's fear and pain in the situation, and he was absolutely right. Uh, he also says that he would often be a pro- approached or contacted by combat veterans who said that his portrayal of someone suffering from PTSD was very accurate and relatable. I I can vouch for that on the basis that to this day, in fact, just this past weekend while I was away at a con, I received an email from a veteran who uh, had lost his entire unit in Iraq. And he was talking about having seen this episode during his recovery uh, at a VA hospital and how much it meant to him yeah. and how much this resonated. And I've received many such emails from veterans, some who have lost limbs, some who have lost uh, service companions uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And 
as I've been getting these emails for close to 20 years because apparently there's a lot of downtime for troops when they're on deployment. Yeah. And a lot of them spend time binging shows off of uh, old DVDs and right, yeah. Deep, Space, Deep Space Nine is apparently one of their favorites. And so very often when this episode comes around, it really strikes a chord with a lot of veterans. Uh, and it's also a big part of how I got picked back about uh, 10 years or so ago to co-author a book with an Iraq war veteran named Brian Anderson, whose uh, Humvee was hit by an IED while he was on deployment in Iraq. He lost both his legs and one arm to the IED. Um, and he came out and he sort of embraced life with new gusto despite having lost limbs. And he embraced getting prosthetics and learning to live again and take up extreme sports. And he became an <laughs> actor and a spokesman wow. and a speaker. And so because of you know, the fact that I wrote this episode and had this kind of uh, grounding with uh, the subject matter, uh, it led to me being chosen as his co-author for that book. That's great. Well, Aaron Eisenberg uh, is, of course, the star of this episode, no question. And Nog is a character who arguably has one of the, the strongest character arcs in DS9, going from a juvenile delinquent in the, in the pilot to a lieutenant in Starfleet and a decorated war hero by the series' end. And, of course, that character was embodied by Eisenberg, an actor, a photographer, a podcaster who played the role of Nog for all seven seasons of DS9. He also guest starred as a Kazon in the second season Voyager episode Initiations, and he appeared in the Star Trek fan film Renegades, which was directed by Tim Russ. He also hosted and produced a Star Trek podcast called The Seventh Rule, along with DS9 co-star Sarah Lofton. His last film role was in the 2019 film Seven Days to Vegas, which premiered on September 20th of 2019, the day before Aaron's death from heart failure at age 50. And I never met Aaron. I, I wish that I had, but I've seen more than a few interviews with him, and I, mm -hmm. I get the impression that he was one of the good ones. He was somebody yeah. who had faced tragedy and uncertainty in his life. Um, he, he was adopted at, as a baby, and his adopted mother learned that he had only one partially working kidney, which of course caused complications and stunted his development. He grew up on dialysis, and he had his first kidney transplant at the age of 17. He had a second transplant at 46. So he's been dealt this bad hand, and yet just a few years after his first transplant, He's getting film and TV roles. He's working as an actor. He lands this role of Nog on DS9. He becomes a father and he starts his own photography photography business and a podcast. And every interview I've ever seen with him, he's so positive. He, he talks about how much he enjoys what he does and how lucky he's been. He was such a passionate person and, and he was an advocate for organ donation, uh, encouraging people to mm -hmm. become donors and to help other people. He accomplished so much in just his 50 years. And it, I, I had never really processed before he passed away last year that he and I were basically the same age. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a real privilege to have been able to you know, be part of the story writing team for this episode that features him mm -hmm. in this way. Because as you say, he grew up no stranger to pain, to suffering, and probably having to confront the reality of his own mortality from a young age. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because of that and because it gave him – uh, a greater sensitivity. It put him more in touch with the sort of dark emotions of, of having to face the fear, having to face the, the sort of grim reality that we all end sooner or later. Yeah. It made him a better actor. And I think it made him perfectly suited for this role, for this episode. He was able to tap into 
his own life experience, his own sense memory, his own suffering, his own pain. And it made his performance so authentic. And I think that's what comes through. And part of why it is so affecting is that it's not just a great performance, but it's also true. In his case, there's a lot of truth in it. There's a lot of himself in it. He's sharing himself. He's revealing himself. He's giving himself to us in his performance in this episode, I think, uh, in a way that just really makes it hit home. And I know it worked for me because when we were approached, we can get into the, the sort of nitty gritty of the writing and the mutation of the script later. But part of what worked for me when John and I were asked to rewrite our original pitch into what became the final story document Mm. for paper moon, Mm -hmm. We were asked to tap into this story about Nog losing his leg and figure out why Nog is in the hollow suite and what's he going through. And I had done some research into post-traumatic stress disorder. But when I was writing some of the, you know, some of the insights from Nog's point of view in the story outline, many of which made it word for word into the final episode in his dialogue, what I was drawing on was that when I was 21 – I was a passenger in a car that got T-boned at an intersection on July 4th uh, at about 1030 at night. And we got knocked off the road and wrapped around a telephone pole. And all of us in the car ended up getting injured. They had to send emergency crews to rip the doors off the car and pull us all out. Uh, My friend Brian, uh, who was driving... Um, he got like his ribs flailed against the, the steering wheel, a girl in the front seat named Genevieve, who'd been an athlete at Smith college, got her knee put through the dash and that ended her athletic career. Mm -hmm. The truck had made impact on the rear passenger side door where my friend TJ was sitting. He got his head put through the window. He ended up with, uh, lacerations down the side of his head, concussion and memory loss. Mm -hmm. And then I got slammed against the far side of the car. I ended up with neck injuries, back injuries, hip injuries. Um, I ended up in rehab learning to walk for about six months. Mm. So I had to go back from my senior year of college while doing physical therapy and learning and, and basically relearning how to walk and stand. And uh, I had hideous back pain and I would suffer weird spasms. But the upshot of that accident was – after you get through the initial shock of it and you deal with the PTSD, the lingering emotional after effect was to realize I am not invincible. I am not invulnerable. It basically was that shock to the system at a very young age, about the same age that Nog is in it's only a paper moon. When he realizes if you can get your leg shot off today, you can get your head shot off tomorrow. Yeah. You will not live forever. You are not a god. You are not immortal. You are not made of steel. You are just flesh and bone, and you are mortal, and you are vulnerable. And now he's got to confront this. All the illusions that come with youth. Uh, you know, when you're young, you don't think about mortality. Life is still new. You're young. You're strong. You're vital. You, you bounce back quickly from things. And then you get hit with something like this. You take a blow that's worse than you've ever really imagined would ever happen to you, and all your illusions are gone in an instant, and you have to reevaluate your place in the world and reevaluate your own existence. And that's what Nog is going through. And having been put through that myself at 21, I knew where I was coming from when I was writing his arc in the story outline, and it's clear that. Aaron, who had had his own share of suffering uh, throughout his life, understood it 
even better than I did. And he was able to bring it to life. He took those words and he just found the truth in it. Yeah. And even, you know, like I said before, added more to it where it wasn't necessarily scripted that he would become so emotional, but just kind of feeling, no, I, I know what this character's going through and this is what would be happening. That's, that's amazing. I mean, yeah, he, I mean, that's a brave choice for an actor to bear his soul like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and he had the bravery uh, and the chops to pull it off. And, and he was always somebody who, who I think was really in touch with his emotions. Like one of my favorite parts of the DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind, is not just when he becomes emotional talking about what the show means to him, which is a beautiful mm-hmm. segment, but or, you know, the fact that Captain Knock becomes the focal character of the first part of the hypothetical eighth season. But Before they blow him up. Yeah, they do blow him up, though. But there's this part where uh, he's he's reading a negative fan letter. There's a there's a running bit in the doc where the actors are reading letters and internet comments from people who are critical of, of the show. And it'd be easy for him to tell that person to screw off. You know, Many of the other actors are kind of flipping the bird to these commenters uh, in their segments. But Aaron reads it and he puts the letter down and he immediately says to Iris Stephen Bear, who's the interviewer, wow, that must have been really difficult for you to hear comments like that. Like he's just a really selfless, considerate person. Uh, and as this yeah. episode proves, he was a great actor and a performer as well. Absolutely. Well, this episode also features James Darren in the role of Vic Fontaine, and Darren has had a long, long career as an actor and a singer. His first film role was in the 1956 movie Rumble on the Docks with Columbia and Pictures, and he went on to appear as Moondoggy in the three Gidget films. Uh, he was also Dr. Tony Newman on the Time Tunnel series, as well as Jim Corrigan on T.J. Hooker, uh, with many other film and TV appearances. He was also a director of TV, directed episodes of shows like The A-Team, Beverly Hills 90210, and Melrose Place. And of course, he's a singer. He's really released 13 albums and many, many singles. He reached number three on the Billboard Top 100 charts with his 1961 hit, Goodbye, Cruel World. He also released in 1999 a compilation album of the songs he performed on DS9 as Vic Fontaine called This One's From The Heart. And listening to those songs in preparation for this show, especially uh, I'll Be Seeing You and reflecting on the recent uh, death of uh, Aaron uh, last year, it was like, Hey, thanks. I don't need to cry today. I got a script to write. I got work to do. I got to research this episode. But I just found myself being very uh, affected and touched by a lot of the um, music in the show. Yeah, I mean, that was part of why I suggested that we talk about It's a Paper Moon was because of the passing of Aaron. I would not have otherwise suggested what would seem like a self-serving, hey, let's talk about another episode I co-wrote. <laughs> ah, well, uh, why not? I, I, would, I would have gone in another direction had it not been for the passing of Aaron. No. And I just feel like uh, suddenly that made it so timely and I think so important uh, just to remember how much he meant to us and what a tremendous performer he was. Um, I feel like that trumps, uh, pardon the use of the term, but, you know, that that uh, – basically is more important than whatever perceived ego boost I get from talking about another episode I was involved with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Other guest performers are important in this show as well. Chase Masterson, of course, appears as Lita, as does Max Gredenchik as Rom. And the only sort of new guest actor in this episode is Tammy Adrian George, who appears as Keisha, Jake's date at Vix. George appeared in TV guest roles throughout the 90s and 2000s, and she also appeared in the films Starship Troopers and Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Hmm. Well, I thought that we would talk about the specifics uh, of the episode. Uh, I believe that I've heard, I don't remember if it's on this show or just in a conversation with you uh, about the origin of the episode as a kind of everybody comes to Quark's uh, cheers sort of story. 
Yeah, I think I may have told you that story in a previous uh, uh, interview for Enterprising Individuals. I'm not sure. Well, it did start off that way. And I think that we, as we mentioned before on this show, um, over developing the script and over time, the different BC stories kind of get stripped away and we end up with just this bottle episode, essentially, which focuses on uh, Nog's recovery. Yeah, I mean, a bottle episode is the key term here. That was what led to the original pitch, Everyone Comes to Quarks. Yeah. The notion was when you were back then in the 90s, freelancers could still pitch to network TV shows because they were doing 20-some-odd episodes a year. They were expected to buy at least a handful of episodes from freelancers. So they would take pitches. Uh, these days with staff-written shows, most don't take pitches anymore. Mm. Um but we had the notion, and what we learned was that if you're trying to sell as a freelancer back in the 90s, the best way to do it was to pitch the bottle show. Pitch a story that only utilizes their standing sets, their core cast, that doesn't involve any heavy visual effects or you know complex uh, destruction of anything. Right. And you know, try to keep it cheap and try to keep it uh, on as few sets as possible. And we figured out that if you could write an entire episode where the whole episode takes place on a single set where they only have to light it once and then shoot for the week or, you know, do like a flat light setting and then have a couple of other presets. But basically, if you can spend a whole week working on one set, you can work very quickly and very cost effectively. And all the money they save shooting your bottle show is now money that they get to roll over into one of their big special effects extravaganzas <laughs> that they write in-house. So yeah. they loved it. <laughs> when you would pitch them something cheap. Right. So we pitched them the idea of uh, something inspired by Cheers, essentially. A whole bunch of storylines, A, B, and C, that would all take place inside Quark's restaurant. One involves, you know, just Quark running the place from uh, night, you know, from opening until close. You've got Dax on a blind date that just seems to keep going wrong. You've got uh, Jake and Cisco are in one of the hollow suites replaying a game of the World Series, but we only ever hear about it when they come out of the hollow suite griping about something. Right. Uh, you've got O'Brien and Bashir are involved in winning a darts tournament against some visiting people, you know, in one corner and so on and so forth. And so everybody is threading in and out of the place. And that was the big core idea. We thought, well, you know, we can get some fun out of that. We And then everything comes together, converges. You have a big Donnie Brook in the bar. Some furniture gets destroyed, but that's not a big expense. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> We thought, you know, this would be fun. And they were intrigued by it. They said, this sounds really great. We should try to do this. But they couldn't quite figure out, A, where it would fit in the seasons that they were working on. Because we pitched it around season four, okay. like before season four. Sure. And it was in their folders until season seven because they'd keep coming back to it saying, you know, we really ought to do that one this year. And they'd say, all right, but where do we put it? Where does it fit? And they would say it needs a stronger, heavier A story, something that's actually serious enough to hang your hat on. And then you can do the two lighter plots on either side of it. Yeah. And they kept saying, well, nothing really fits. Nothing really fits. And then part of what made it work finally was when they came around to season seven and they revisited, they said, well, we just spent all that money building the Vic Fontaine uh, Vegas sets, and we need to amortize that cost by using it in a few more episodes. What if we change the Quark's pitch to a Vic Fontaine pitch, and we set this thing there? And they were like, all right, that actually makes sense. So we switch you know, Quark's to Vic's, 
And then they say, all right, so we just need a heavy A plot to hang a hat on, and then we need some side plots. And that was how they got from what we pitched to when they came back to us and said, all right, we've made a few minor changes. Right. <laughs> and we said, minor changes? We don't recognize any of this. Uh, why are you contacting us? They said, because it's your name on the front of the folder. So they spell it out. We want this. We want a story about Nog. He's coming back with a prosthetic leg. He has phantom pain. He wants to do his rehab in the hollow suite, but he's being a dick about it and uh, this and that. <laughs> and we said, okay, why is he having all this trouble? Why is he in the hollow suite? And I I you not, pardon my French, Ron Moore says to us, how are we supposed to know it's your story? <laughs> well, um, that, that he had faith in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose that's one way of putting that's it. One way so to he tells us it. it's on a Friday and says, can you uh, have an outline back to us on Monday? Sure, yeah. Not, not being fools, we said, of course we can. We'll have an outline to you on Monday. And, <laughs> and we did. And the funny thing is, is that although on this episode we are credited with story by... David Mack and John J. Ordover, right. as opposed to Starship Down, which says written by David Mack and John J. Ordover, right. much more of our actual work, more of my actual words from the outline made it onto the screen in Paper Moon <laughs> than from our teleplay making it into the final version of Starship Down. Wow. Like maybe 10 words made it into Starship Down. It was rewritten like seven times by Rene Echeverria in-house. Yeah. Whereas once we got the outline done and back to Ron and, and, the, and the writer's room, I think the script didn't go through that many drafts. There were very few drafts. It happened very quickly and it was very close to the outline. Very few changes were made once we locked the story. Yeah. They, they did a few passes. They did a polishing draft, showrunner draft, and then it was in front of the cameras, as far as I can tell. I never really knew that about TV and credits and, and who writes what until I started, um, you know, really getting into Star Trek and, and meeting people that had written shows for Star Trek and also learning about how somebody would turn in a script on the original series and DC Fontana would have to do a page one rewrite and then would either not get credited or just have a co-credit or Roddenberry would come in and just scribble things on it and we do that instead. Like the names that you see definitely were a part of the process, but you have no idea who was exactly doing what. Right. TV is so collaborative and it's very odd. Sometimes there are political or economic decisions that guide whether or not a producer's name winds up on a script. Mm. For instance, a writer producer who is on staff uh, in an above the line capacity, which means at any level above story editor mm -hmm. uh, or actually above executive story editor, if they're credited as producer of any kind, they're now considered an executive uh, with production responsibilities as well. They're, they're, they're a writing executive. Yeah. So what happens is if, let's say, Rene Echeverria had decided that he was getting stuck doing seven drafts on Starship Down and he decided he wanted to put his name on it because he felt like you know he actually you know completely earned it. I mean, that's mostly his work after sure. the rewrite started. Sure. He'd have been totally within his rights, but because of the rules at the Writers Guild, that would have – potentially precluded him from having another credit uh, on an episode that he pitched later on. Okay. So there are political reasons uh, and, you know, guild credit reasons and financial reasons. So he may have said, you know, it's not worth it to me 
to lose the written by credit or, you know, to, to lose the ability to claim this episode that I care more about, which is the product of my pitch. Right. I would rather let these guys just take the credit for this one and I'll take the credit on the one that I pitched and it's just not worth it. Whereas on something like this, where they didn't have time to muck about waiting two weeks for me and John to write a script, they needed a script right away. They were under the gun. Right. So Ron just had to crank this thing out. If they had had the time, maybe they would have given us script assignment, maybe not. Uh, but they just didn't have the time. It just didn't even come up. Hmm. That was not an issue at that point. They said, we needed a story by Monday and we need to get this thing rolling. Right. Uh, so it happened very fast. And, uh, but you know, as a result, even though we only have story credit, a lot of our work made it through, made it, you know, relatively unscathed into the script and then onto the screen. Sure. So you can never really tell from the credits, whose work you're really reading. You just have to sort of trust that in the end, in the aggregate, that if you've got a good room uh, of people who work together, who contribute good ideas, who build each other up, who uh, help each other toward the best possible version of their idea, that no matter whose name is on it, as long as, as, long as you've got a show with a good room, um, you're going to get a good product. Yeah. And I think that that was the strength of DS9 is it had such a great room of great imaginations, great talent, very generous writers, people who were not about ego. They were just about what is the best idea? How is the best way to get this thing done? And they were not obsessed with, you know, is, is, is my name on it? Am I getting the credit that I deserve? Yeah. Am I getting the paycheck? It was more, are we producing the best show we can make? And I think that's part of what I consider to be the uh, lasting greatness of Deep Space Nine was the team spirit that drove that writer's room. That sounds amazing, but it also sounds like it's a, a, a rarity in, uh, in TV writing in Hollywood. I think it is. Yeah. Well, uh, DS9 was always concerned with showing the real effects of war on people and communities, um, like in this episode or in the battle, to, uh, nor the battles of the strong or siege of AR-558. This episode does what I think Star Trek does best or what it should be trying to do, which is tell a familiar story, uh, in this case about a, a shell-shocked soldier with PTSD, and putting it in an unfamiliar sci-fi context, um, you know, in this case an alien version of a 1962 casino that's on a space station in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's basically saying, you know, what would be the coping mechanism of a soldier in that uh, era, in that setting? Yeah. You know, uh, in, in another setting, it might be a guy who simply has to run away, has to go home to the family farm to recuperate and can't get off the farm. In this case, you've got the ability to say, well, he retreats into a virtual reality environment and winds up uh, forming a bond with a very empathetic, high-level artificial intelligence. Right, right. The, and it's it's interesting in that it's the uh, Vic Fontaine character who actually does the most to coax Nog back toward healing, yeah. especially the trick with handing him the cane with the lion's head finial yeah. and telling him, this is really important. This belonged to so-and-so. Uh, it's, it's really special. But uh, it's not like your regular cane, so be careful. It's a little bit fragile. Don't put your full weight on it. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> and so, you know, Nog thinks he's getting this really special gift, but he has to be careful with it, so he's not putting his full weight on it. He doesn't realize what's really happening is that Vic is training him. He's weaning him off the cane. Yeah. 
He doesn't even realize it's happening. <laughs> yeah, which is so smart. Uh, I've heard like good things and bad things from people uh, in their re- response to the depiction uh, of treatment of PTSD in the episode. You know, like I said before, actual veterans weighed in and said that Eisenberg's portrayal of it was spot on and powerful. Um, one of the places I go that I always go to prepare for these episodes is to um, Keith DeCandido's tour.com rewatch blogs. And he was really critical of Esri Dax's performance of her duties as counselor in this episode and his review of it. And he does concede that this is a TV show. So, you know, we got, yeah, they had 43. Minutes. Wow. One they hour did, and he's but, cured. Yeah. Of PTSD. One hour, one hour, not even. He had 43 minutes when you factor in commercials. Yeah. Or it's free. Yeah. And that's not how PTSD works. Um, but I, I did think that Esri showed a lot of patience and latitude and letting Nog, uh, pick, you know, choose the, the the pace of his recovery and the location. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of speaks to an enlightened philosophy within Starfleet, within the Federation, where they're not just going to say, all right, soldier, you've got a new leg back on the ready right, line. Right, right, right. Where they can tell this kid ain't right in the head. He's not ready to go back to service. He's not he's not all there. He needs more time. I'd have to imagine that in the 24th century, hollow suites would be used for this sort of thing and actual counseling. Um, being able to visit certain scenarios or, or even retreat for a while could be a really valuable resource. Everybody castigates Barkley for taking it to the holodeck, but I mean, that could be like an approved treatment. On the other hand, as we can see from this episode, it can be abused. It can become a crutch yeah. if you become too enamored of the shelter, of the illusion, uh, the fantasy then you use it to shut out the real world. And eventually, you know, Vic has to sort of shut his own program down, put his foot down as an AI with a certain degree (laughs) of autonomy and say, kid, you know, I'm not doing you any favors by letting you stay in here. So I'm going to shut this program down and you have to go home. You got to get your life together, kid. And your life ain't in here. It's out there. Yeah. That has to be something that all Federation citizens struggle with. And I think every program should have something like that built in. You know, it's sort of like the Netflix. Are you still watching this thing that comes up, you know, after you've watched six things in a row, like the holiday should just stop and go, Okay, like, what's going on? Are we okay here? You, 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 you've been in here for eight days. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, people... Which, of course, also was the other great sort of comedic touch of Quark going, and who's paying for all this hollow sweet time? <laughs> yeah. I guess I am. And Sisuk says, and it's very generous of you. Yes, thank you for that. We appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about the richness and the layers of this episode, and despite the fact that it's essentially just this one story, uh, there's so much sci-fi weirdness that's happening in it. And I came up with a few pitches just for different aspects of what happens in the episode you know we, we already talked about uh, a hologram who has achieved self-awareness argues the artificiality of his world to confront convince his friend to return to the real world we've got uh, an alien war veteran is doing books in a 1962 casino uh, a counselor with a gestalt personality is using reverse psychology on a hologram to further her treatment of her ptsd patient all of these are like great astonishing stories like short story pitches and here they all just come together and they're all just elements in the whole, which is yeah. really kind of remarkable when you think that they're just coming at you so fast and it all just feels like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it, you just all accept it because of how well it fits together. Um, in this episode, we're told that Nog's been fitted with a biosynthetic prosthesis and that's pretty much it. You know, for a future setting, 
throughout all of Trek, we don't see a lot of bionics or prosthesis. And I mean, we see Jordy's visor, um, Seven's eye. You know, we're seeing them now more in shows like Discovery with um, Detmer's prosthesis. And we see a crewman in a wheelchair. Um, maybe you've dealt with this as an author of tie-in media, but are there more characters with chronic injuries or disabilities in the novels? Not really, although when we have dealt with the notion of prosthesis, replacement limbs, replacement organs, the notion has always been that the aesthetic within the Federation has tended toward the indistinguishable prosthesis. Uh The replacement, which is not outwardly visible. For instance, part of the goal uh, with Geordi was eventually, as you see in the movies, they replaced the visor with the cybernetic eyes. The eyes are a little freaky, but they're just a little more natural, a little more expressive. And so you've got this notion of, you know, moving away from the obvious prosthesis towards something that's less uh, overt. And I think that that's, you know, sort of the same thing with Nog. The whole notion is the biosynthetic leg should be indistinguishable from the other leg. Like if you were to see him in workout clothes, you'd never know that the one leg is a prosthesis. It's not going to be a gray piece of semi-plastic machinery. Yeah, right. It's going to it's going to look like a natural leg. And I think that that's part of the just the aesthetic of the Federation. The Federation seems to have a little bit of a squick factor <laughs> when it comes to obvious mechanical augmentation of biological forms, which I think is part of why they react with such horror when they first encounter the Borg, uh, which, you know, basically is all about the utilitarian fusion of organic and cybernetic and with really no regard for the aesthetic of the matter, but rather just the functionality of it. Sure. And we do see, again, like you said, a, a bit of pushback against this in the aesthetics of discovery where the prosthetics, particularly on Detmer with the ocular uh, implant is a little more obvious. They've uh, given up trying to hide it, or maybe at that point Starfleet just, uh, or the Federation hasn't progressed enough in the development of that kind of technology. They haven't learned to make it invisible yet. Yeah. Yeah. It could just be that by the time of the 24th century, the Federation has gotten much better at concealing prosthesis and artificial, uh, you know, replacements uh, and facial grafts and things like that. Sure. I always got the impression, too, with Jordy that not only just having the fam- familiarity with the visor since he'd worn it for so long, but also he enjoyed the increased amount of perception that it gave him. Uh, in his sure. regular life, but also in work. He's the guy who, that, you know, you can have a little iPhone that fits in your pocket, but he's got like the big phone, you know, with the big case clipped to his belt. He has the iPad Pro. Yeah, he uses that for his job. Yeah, that's his work phone. Yeah. Right. And we made it, a, we, I made hay out of that in the books. Uh, in, I, just, I think my first few full length Star Trek novels, the first of them, A Time to Kill, is very much a Tom Clancy esque high-velocity military techno-thriller in which the Enterprise crew on a very short deadline has to overcome these really powerful ground-based defenses on an alien planet so that they can subdue the planet and plant a flag before the Klingons get there. And so they have to send these strike teams that are dropping in with orbital skydiving suits. And there's a sequence where I've got Jordy is put in command of one of these teams, and he's using his visor to best effect in a combat scenario where he realizes, okay, I'm up against a whole bunch of, you know, opponents, I'm outnumbered, what can I do to turn this to my advantage? And he realizes, 
well, I can shoot out all the light sources and then switch over to UV. They don't have UV vision, and I'll pick them off. <laughs> and that's exactly what he does. He blasts out all the lights, and then he just switches over to UV. They're all blind, and he just bang, 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 picks them off. That's cool. Jordy's <laughs> a dangerous guy when he puts his head to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we commando Jordy. I like it. I mean, yeah, basically, I, I turned him into Commando Jordy. This was Jordy, you know, it's like he's all out of Fs to give, and he's, <laughs> he came here to kick butt and, and take names uh, or, chew, or chew, you know, Andorian bubble gum and, and kick butt, and he's all out of bubble gum. Right. <laughs> uh, Vic uh, features, of course, in this episode, and whenever I see Vic or I see, like, these long-running holiday characters, I wonder, is Vic alive, like, in the Moriarty sense or in the sense of the Doctor on Voyager, he's he's so receptive to emotions and to what Nog needs in this recovery, and he's able to. He talks to the uh, to the counselor to Esri, and he has to be kind of convinced, but then he kind of understands what you know what she's telling him. And I know that the sophistication of holiday characters, we've seen that they are easily passing Turing tests. You know, they they can be very sensitive, but is he really sentient? I'm not sure, but I think the implication of this episode is that if he was not so at the beginning, he has achieved a state very much like that by the end. Yeah. The fact that he is given autonomy over his program, the ability to start it up when he wants to start it up, shut it down when he wants to shut it down, that he can pretty much live his virtual life on his own terms and his own time. I think that's a remarkable gift, which they, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly, I think they give it to him at the end of this episode. Hmm. Was it this episode or was it another one? It's yeah. They they tell him that they're going to have his his program will run constantly, and so he'll continue to sort of um, develop and have emergent properties. I would be willing to bet that yeah, if he wasn't intended to be a Moriarty level sentient hollow program <laughs> before this, he has achieved that status by the end of it, just out of virtue of having been allowed to continue running in a continual basis for so long. Yeah. That I think that, you know, it, it pulled so many resources, some switch flipped. And I think, you know, by some reasonable standard, you would have to declare that Vic Fontaine is at least self-aware. He is sentient to a certain <laughs> degree. Um, what would be interesting, of course, would be, you know, uh, you, you've got the whole thing. Now, I do know that one part of the new Picard series is that they're still arguing over the rights of synthetic yes, beings. Uh, and in that case, they're talking about androids, but I know that that can also extend to holographic entities, as we saw in the Voyager TV series. Right. It would be interesting to see if a character such as Vic Fontaine could be granted autonomy, you know, acquire a mobile emitter such as the one the doctor got from the future yeah. and eventually free himself and be free to simply go out and live in the physical universe. Uh, yeah, or like be alive in the mirror universe. I love how he's just a real person and they just never explained why that was. And then he's immediately yeah. killed off. It's just like, yeah. that's the biggest enigma of Trek for me. Well, that, that's just there to mess with your head <laughs> yeah. and get him a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and I love the, of course, the, the obvious metaphor of his world and even himself being the paper moon, you know, in, in the song in this instance. Um, yeah. 
I, I think that going off of that and going off the uh, conversation that we had when we were talking about the schizoid man, probably the most important thing for the holodeck would be having a hard-coded off switch that it can only run for so long. Because if somebody, if you are playing, uh, you know, Axis and Allies or something and you accidentally leave it running and when you go out of town for a fortnight, you come back and like Hitler's real and he's got control of the ship now because he was yeah. on long enough to grow into like a thinking uh, being. It could also just be a matter of the level of programming. For instance, maybe, you know, Vic Fontaine was always intended to be a special case. I'm not even really sure if they explain how they acquired that program or where it came from, or if that was meant to be just a little mysterious. Perhaps in the case of like a, a Call of Duty uh, type of uh, hollow sim, maybe those are deliberately written to operate within extremely limited parameters uh, and characters like off-screen characters such as, you know, hollow sim Hitler <laughs> are specifically limited to, they can only operate within the parameters of the game. This is the limit. You know, they don't develop empathy. They're not made for extended contact. Right. And yeah, maybe the game has like, you know, a, a maximum six hour duration and then it resets, dumps its core memory and you replay. Yeah. As somebody who's written a lot of material for Trek, I, I need your definitive answer. What are the holodeck characters made of? When you've got a human being, what is it? Is it actual? Does a computer actually make a, a, an actual human body that's just being manipulated no. by force fields? Like, what is that no. thing? Okay, it's a combination of light and photons. It's a holographic projection. Yeah. And then to give it a sense of physicality, only when needed... They use shaped force fields right. uh, to essentially create tactile uh, response. Uh, they can simulate a wide variety of uh, of tactile you know uh, surfaces. They can simulate the force of contact, the resistance of something that gives a little bit when you make contact with it. Yeah. They can simulate fabrics. Um, they would only replicate physical matter. If it was important that you have a prop that can be taken away and perhaps kept as a souvenir when the program ends, yeah. because the, the uh, I don't know about the the small hollow suites, but the full size holodeck combines force fields, hollow emitters, and replicator technology, so that some of the objects that are created, some of the physical matter that is created, if it is meant to be uh, handled and interacted with by the participants, it has to have a certain degree of physicality. For instance, the snowballs that are thrown sure. out of the hollow deck uh, in an early episode of TNG, that would only be possible if there was replicated snow. So obviously the thing is capable of replicating a limited amount of matter to be handled and used. And if it can do that, then it could, for instance, replicate a simple inorganic prop or it could replicate food at molecular level, which could then be taken out of the holodeck or hollow suite and enjoyed later. That would be sort of like a prop, a takeaway. You know, you go to a hollow suite recreation of Emerald's Kitchen in New Orleans, <laughs> and you, you don't finish the meal, you get a little you mean doggy Cisco's, bag. Cisco's, but yeah. Or Cisco's, let's say. Let's say Cisco's. Yeah. I'm just saying, if you were more interested in the historical New Orleans. <laughs> sure. Yes, right. You know, you go, to Paul, you go to Paul Prudhomme's Kitchen, let's say. Right. You get a doggy bag and you take it with you. Well, if it replicated the food and it replicated a container to put it in, and those are persistent and not just creations of light and force field, well, then that's a physical object which can be allowed to persist. The program can be told, do not reabsorb that matter once it's created. Yeah. Allow it to be taken out. Or if it's taken out, then, you know, then it's off the grid and you only dissolve things that are left behind. Right. So 
it's very complicated, and I had to write a whole memo about this for the Lower Decks team. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so you've practiced I had to, this. <laughs> I, believe me, I had to get into excruciating levels of detail about, well, what about this? Well, what if this happens and you turn off the power to the hull deck? I'm like, well, in that case, this would happen. And that, well, what if you brought this in? Well, the, it can distinguish between foreign matter brought in that's not part of the program, right. matter that it replicates as part of the program, and then matter that it simulates through light and force fields. And it can distinguish between these. Well, how does it know what live matter? You know, does it know the difference between? I'm like, yeah, it knows, it understands. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's good to know that that lower text will be scientifically, or at least uh, from the Trek perspective, accurate. I remember one of the original. I don't know if it was a statement or, or just a pitch, but the original sort of announcement of Lower Decks was like, we're going to follow like the little people, the people that like put the uh, the yellow dye in the uh, replicator. So bananas. The yellow color. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I'm like, well, that's not how those work. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it's like if they want to do it that way, I guess I'd be OK, you know, as a comedy thing. But something else, too, is I, we're, I know we're supposed to swallow a lot of fantastic technology in Star Trek, but. What everything you just described is nearly unbelievable for me. Just the the fact that you could replicate uh, or you could produce force fields that like you could box uh, Muhammad Ali and he hit you, or you would have sex with Marilyn Monroe, and somehow it would be able to replicate both of those experiences. I I know it would be kind of against the amazing immersion of the holodeck, but I'd like to hear characters complain about the holodeck the way they do about replicated food. You know how like they never get the uh, Chateaubriand, like exactly what it's supposed to be. And, and if you're, um, I don't know, dancing with uh, Barishnikov or something, I like to hear like the little, the little things that aren't quite perfect that make it still a simulation. Yeah, for some reason I can just say, you know, well, he, when you dance with someone in the holodeck, their timing is never right. It's like you always want to say, are you rushing or are you dragging? Yeah, are right. you rushing or are you dragging? <laughs> right. Yeah. Not my yeah. tempo. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had characters in the books remark before about how. The food from the replicator is never quite as good as the real thing made by a real cook from actual ingredients. That there's always something just a little bit wrong. Something's always just like a molecule off and you're never sure what it is. Yeah. Or maybe it's just the fact that it's so uniform. It is literally down to the molecule exactly the same thing every time. Yeah. That's like there's no surprise left in the steak. Yeah, right. Exactly. You're just going to have that same steak over, which for some people is, would be exactly what they're looking for. But I think right, people... yeah, there, there are people who like McDonald's. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but I mean, it, it is one of those things where, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that there'd be room for it, but it would have to be the right thing. That's more of a Quentin Tarantino approach to Star Trek <laughs> yeah. sitting here. Griping about how the, you know, the, it's like, I tried to have sex with Marilyn Monroe and, you know, it's like the, the level of granule detail and the sort of the things you would have to comment on in order to critique that you can't really have in a family show. That's when you start <laughs> getting into a Pulp Fiction level diner discussion where, you know, half your audience is just going to get up and leave the theater. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, did they just say that? They just, I'm out. <laughs> well, I'm, t I'm just glad that we invented the Mick Replicator today. I feel good about that. Oh, yeah. Also known as the Replimat. Replimat, yeah. That's what the Replimat is. The Replimat is an even cheaper version of the Replicator. Yeah, right. That's that's the same. It's the Replicator, but without all the bells and whistles. The same terrible copy every time. That's like being told, it's military rations, but, you know, without all that frilly stuff. Right. Oh, my God. 
God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we wrap up here, there's a question that I wanted to ask you uh, specifically uh, as a Star Trek creator. And don't throw anybody specific under the bus here, but do you have any, I would not do that. Do you have any particular pet peeves about Star Trek writing in general, um, either in books or on screen? Something that always seems to come up in scripts or some trope or device that makes you roll your eyes, one that you avoid as a writer? Without throwing anybody or any show specifically under the bus, sure. I think... One of the things that drives me crazy is when the folks who are trying to write these stories set in the Star Trek universe are clearly not thinking on a large enough scale. Mm -hmm. For instance, they they write these planets that have very one-note planetary environments, and they're not really thinking about notions like time zones, climactic zones, <laughs> right. latitudes, longitudes. They're not thinking about climate systems. Uh, when they don't think about the sheer scale of a solar system versus uh, the galaxy, when they don't think about things like realistic travel times, or when they simply cast aside scientific accuracy in the name of what's cool. There is a more than 50-year history to Star Trek storytelling at this point. Lots of established material to work with. And I think the thing that drives me craziest is when, especially TV writers, more than anybody, because tie-in writers don't have this luxury, but when TV writers say, well, it's so hard to try and keep up with all of that canon material, and we just want to tell cool stories, and we don't want to be boxed in by all that canon. And I have to say, well, no, you're not boxed in. It's actually not a hindrance. If you learn it and, and you understand it and you actually can visually, uh, mentally inhabit the space of Star Trek, that actually becomes a boon. You then learn to work within. You then have questions that are spawned by understanding the ecosystem, by understanding the technological foundation that underpins all of it. Yeah. And very often I think that too many of the folks are just interested in a cool idea, but they're not actually questioning whether or not that idea belongs in Star Trek or they're not actually interrogating the idea sufficiently to say, well, given what we know in Star Trek, can you do this? Would you do this? How would you do this? Yeah. I feel like they just sort of pull things out of thin air. And even in some cases when, you know, people who know Star Trek or who know science try to say, well, actually, that may not be the best way to go. You should consider this, and what you're not taking into account is this. It gets overruled in the name of, yeah, but that's not going to look cool on screen. <laughs> okay. All right. That's what I hate, is when cool on screen trumps what we know to be factually correct, either in <laughs> canon or in real-life science. Yeah. Um, I'd agree with that. And I, whenever people say things like that, I always point them to uh, Captain Picard playing a flute uh, in the last seconds of The Inner Light, an episode that takes place basically on that one Sedona town looking set that they have, you know, an episode that visually isn't really trying to do all that much in terms of effects, but is known as one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever. Oh, sure. Well, uh, this is your fifth appearance on the program, meaning you're now a full commander in our Starfleet. Congratulations on that. And I, Hey, I'm a senior officer. You are now. That. And I can barely even remember what we were talking about uh, in this segment on the last show. Uh, but you've definitely uh, put in the work. So we appreciate that. Uh, I think we were, you know, we were talking about Geordi and um, 
the the sort of places that you took him uh, in your own novels and in the uh, lit universe. Um, I, we haven't seen Jordy and Picard. I know that in the uh, Kirsten Beyer written uh, Countdown comic, which is a prequel to Picard, uh, they've got Jordy. Uh, he's now heading up the uh, Utopia Planitia yards, uh, shipyards, making the rescue fleet um, that will uh, be used in the Romulan rescue. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's what he's doing now uh, in the if the, that counts as canon in the uh, Picard universe. So oh, that's canon. Yeah, if it's Picard, it's canon. Yeah. So we'll, the canon is basically live action uh, motion pictures and television episodes produced by the official controlling entity. Yeah. And these days, they are also likely to grant canon status to the new animated series that they're producing. I think less so on Lower Decks because it's playing a little bit fast and loose. But I think even they are trying to make sure they line up with details that are going to be established in Picard. And uh, I believe similarly um, that the kids' show being produced for Nickelodeon is likewise doing its best to track with Picard and Discovery. So if a supervising producer of Picard writes a IDW comic book, does that count then? The IDW comic book is not canon. Okay. Canon is only the episodes and the movies. Any other subsequent uh, ancillary material is not canon, regardless of who creates it. It doesn't have anything to do with does it track in continuity, does it line up with events. It doesn't have anything to do with quality. None of those things are uh, implied by canon. All canon means is what is the core body of work created by the copyright holder with which all derivative materials, that being prose fiction, comic books, video games, and other merchandising material, must remain consistent. The canon is simply with that with which all derivative materials must remain consistent. It has nothing to do with are they in continuity, do they conflict, are they good, None of that has anything to do with canon. Canon just says, this is the core body of work that we all have to sort of track and stay aware of. And then everything else is the uh, the tie-in. Everything else is ancillary right, to that. Right, I feel like when I'm on social media, that is 75% of the questions that there are is, is this book canon? Is this comic canon? If they did this in the show, why is it like this in the book? So hopefully uh, this will finally put that to rest, at least for the listeners of this show. Uh, also, I'm just looking at my phone right now because uh, it beeped and it looks like uh, the news is out that Star Trek Prodigy will be the name of the Nickelodeon animated show. Uh, if it's not going to be, uh, then you don't have to say anything. If it is, then you can confirm it now. All I know is I saw that same story earlier today, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, I have not seen any public statement from the show's producers that confirms that. Okay. okay. So uh, until Dan and Kevin Hageman say it in a public forum, uh, I don't believe it. Okay. And I wouldn't put any uh, I wouldn't put any trust in it until it is confirmed either by Dan and Kevin Hageman who are the show's creators and showrunners, or if it is confirmed by someone from Secret Hideout or by someone from CBS. But in the absence of an official confirmation from someone like uh, Alex Kurtzman or Heather Caden or Dan and Kevin Hageman, uh, for now I would have to say take it with a grain of salt. I would totally, I'm doing that anyway, and that is great advice. Although uh, a half an hour from now, after we hang up and we hear Alice Kurtzman, I'm going to be a little uh, mad. But Well, notice, I mean, I, I'm just saying, if they confirm it, then you believe it. Sure. If they don't confirm it, well, 
uh, you know, it's not confirmed. That's true. The, the, uh, I mean, the problem is I saw that story and I looked at it and I could not for the life of me figure out from what they were deriving their so-called confirmation. Yeah. I saw no official source confirmation. I saw no quote. I didn't see anything from anybody who was actually authorized to speak uh, to that. So in the absence of an official statement, uh, I cannot uh, confirm that that is correct. Uh, I think the source on this is a Wall Street Journal article, which um, it's behind a paywall, so I can't read it and confirm it right now. But anyway. But did they, but, but did they say who said it in the Wall Street Journal article? Yeah, like I said, uh, I got to sign in to my Wall Street yeah. Journal account. So Yeah, so, I, don't, I, I don't have an account with them. So grain of salt, account. grain of salt for sure. But it is a trademark name. They did trademark. I'm not, I'm not, well, they, they did register the trademark for a TV series. Although I will point out, they registered that pretty close to the same time they registered Star Trek Destiny as the name for a TV That's series. Right. That's right. And someday, someday maybe I'll tell you about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I can't wait for that day. Uh, Commander Mac, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? They can find my website at davidmack, M-A-C-K, Dot pro, dot P-R-O. And you can find me on Twitter at David Allen, A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K, David Allen Mack at Twitter. And people should pre-order the Shadow Commission, which comes out June 9th this year. Absolutely. Uh, June 9, Shadow Commission, book three, the third and final book of my Dark Arts series from Tor Books. Awesome. Book one, The Midnight Front, and book two, The Iron Codex, are both now on sale in a variety of formats. And remember, when you pre-order a book through Amazon... Uh, you are guaranteed whatever the lowest price is between the time you pre-order it and the time they release it. So if they do like a one weekend sale sure. and you have the book on pre-order, whatever the price drops to you during that weekend, that is the price you will pay when the book finally ships. So pre-ordering a book off Amazon is always the best way to make sure you get the lowest price on the books you want. And it's good for authors. It's good for publishers. It's good for everybody. So remember to pre-order your favorite books. Yeah, it's a great deal. And I'll have a link in the show notes that people can do that. Uh, and I want to mention as well that if you're not signed up to be an organ donor, please sign up to be an organ donor. Your generosity can give new lives and new hope to people just like Aaron Eisenberg. If you go to www.organdonoronword.gov, you get directed to your state registry where you can sign up to be a donor, save a life, be a hero, be a donor. Well, David, good luck with your upcoming book. And thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. How would you describe Just Enough Trope? We are the Just Enough Trope podcast. I'm your host, Caliban, joined as always by my co-host. Hi, I'm Mikan Hanna. Oh no, does this mean they can hear all the things I yell at the TV during Downton Abbey? Why did you do that? <laughs> How do you plead? Let the game begin. Yeah, check these fresh moves. Oh! Don't shoot man in face. This isn't the Save Gotham fundraiser. It's the chill family reunion. Master Yoda assigned a Padawan to this bold Jedi. I think it's pronounced Padawan. Oh, Padawan, excuse me. Hey, it's getting late. I think Ralph's going to want his motorcycle back. Uh, I am freaking getting old. <laughs> yeah, I noticed the life clock was blinking in your hand. Get out of here, Wilson. Go fight the Teen Titans or something. I'm unkillable, not unwoundable. You like Sailor Moon, right? Why don't you sail on this d- oh, Wow. Just enough trope. News, reviews, and geek fondue 
every Monday on the Just Enough Trope Podcast Network. Loving me never have a say you so be sorry. What?